Episode 37, Zach Bitter. Welcome to the Oxidative Potential Podcast, where we discuss all things sports science and performance. I'm your host, Matthew DeRoche, and with me is my fellow co-host, Phil Batterson. Enjoy. Good day, folks. In today's episode, I speak with ultramarathon runner and coach Zach Bitter. This was an awesome podcast. Um, For those listening, Zach is just such a great guy, such a nice guy, so humble. Um, Very happy to talk with him. Zach is is widely known for his uh, world records in the 100-mile distance as well as the 12-hour timed event. Um, But he's also... You know, there's another endurance feat that I think is pretty amazing for Zach is um, the 100-mile treadmill run, which is just another level of mental focus to be able to um, hone in on something like that and actually just complete the 100 miles. Um, So, yeah, Zach spent some time running cross-country in University of Wisconsin And after that, he became a teacher, and um, essentially at a certain point, he decided that he was going to pursue um, ultramarathon running full-time. And ever since then, he's been consistently performing extremely well um, and performing at such a high level for so long, which is really what I think is uh, very interesting about Zach, especially in a sport like ultramarathon running. Um, so I was really happy to get to ask Zach a lot of the questions I've had for him, uh, over the years, cause I've listened to his podcast, uh, for several years now. It's really great content. And, um, there's always been some questions I've, I've wanted to ask Zach about, um, and hear his perspective on, um, also, uh, there's quite a bit of gold in this, uh, this episode. Like if you listen closely, You'll understand that Zach's ability um, for essentialism and, and cutting away the fat and really honing in on the very few small but intricate steps that are that are needed to really whittle down on his craft and, and continuously um, improve his his uh, outputs. So I hope you guys take as much away from this episode that I did, and I'll leave all the links to Zach in the show notes whether that's his uh, social media, his website for coaching consultation, and also I'll leave his podcast link in the show notes as well. So hope you guys enjoy, and we'll catch you later. So this is this is interesting because whenever I got into the ultra marathon space, ultra running, trying to understand the demands, the physiological demands of ultra running, trying to understand the psychological demands. I go through this process when I go through sports. I read what's on the forums first. I read what everyone's saying on the forums. Then I go through what the coaches and the athletes are saying, whether that's through their perspective blogs or, or whatever it is. Then I then I start looking at training programs. And then I start looking at research. And one of the first things that I came across was, so I was trying to understand more about pacing and ultramarathons. And I came across you talking about you know, using RPE and in your training and, and even in racing and stuff like that. And I was like, man, does this guy not know like they can measure? I was saying this with Jason Coop the other day. I'm like, does this guy <laughs> not know that you can like demarcate zones with like 
VT1 and lactate threshold. And I'm like, why is he training to RPE? I'm like, I didn't get it. And that was actually the kind of the beginning of my shift around RPE. Cause after I did my first ultra marathon, I was like, Oh, I saw the, the dysregulation that goes on with these things. And then I started to see the genius in what you were talking about behind RPE. So that's kind of the first thing I want to chat about with you today. Yeah. So like, how did you come to the conclusion that RPE is something that you want to settle on and get good with? Yeah, it's interesting because I think really when when you really the, the hard, I should I should back up the hard part is RP to learn it. So in order to really understand it, you have to go through the full spectrum of like a periodized training plan. So you get an ex, you get the opportunity to feel what it's like to put together like an intensity that's at your VO2 max or an intensity that's at your lactate threshold, an intensity that's at your aerobic threshold, and some of these kind of foundation like intensities that that you spoke of. And sometimes I think using things like heart rate and other metrics are like going into lab and actually get these tests done are very valuable tools that you can use. But one thing I realized is once you get that information, if you understand what it feels like, how the breathing patterns occur at these different intensities, your body is telling you when you're crossing your aerobic threshold, when you're hitting your lactate threshold and some of this stuff. And when you have that sort of a scenario set up, I think you can start leading on RP as your like your, your compass intra workout in a lot of cases mm-hmm. where things like heart rate sometimes are slow to respond. Don't capture, like if I'm doing like a 60 second interval, heart rate might not capture that live enough for me to be able to really rely on that in the workout itself. And when you're running that hard, it's hard to be like kind of looking down at your watch, (laughs) trying to see it anyway. So you have that and then you get to the race itself and we have this kind of unique situation going on, I think with ultra marathon where it's extrapolated out so far past what you're going to do in any single training session in most cases that you start losing the reliability of things other than how your body feels. And you really need to understand what your body's telling you in order to adjust and make sure you're doing the right things during this race. So you're finding yourself in a position to be able to finish strong versus having the wheels come off on you and, and just knowing why these things are happening. So there's like, there's a nutritional aspect to that when you're out there racing and there's a hydration aspect to that when you're racing. And then there's just like the, the actual act of making sure you're running at a sustainable enough pace that it, that you can get to the finish line without having things end early for you because you're pacing yourself for 70 miles when you were trying to run a hundred or something like that. Yeah, that was, uh, I liked your explanation there. How, so comparing, let, let's just talk about this because I, I, you just mentioned obviously RPE, RPE being a skill, and I think it's a it's a valuable skill that transfers and and in many ways that a lot of individuals might not not conceive or think of. Whether that's transferring it into the weight room and understanding where you're at in terms of fatigue and where you're at for your stimulus that you're looking for, or just yeah, like you said, whether it's an interval training, whether it's an easy endurance runs, because. We know day-to-day physiology is inherently going to change dependent on your state. That's why when you go into a lab to get tested, like when I come, have someone come to get tested, it's like, hey, you take these amount of days off, make sure you're not eating these things before you come, right before you come in. You're doing all these little things to manipulate and isolate variables. But training, there's so many variables that are being layered on, whether it's fatigue from the previous day, everything is going to be slightly different. And the skill of RPE is just such a good transferable thing for a race because when you go on race day there's never been a point in time in your training where you've been that fresh 
Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Your RPE is going to be inherently be different. So that's, you see people jumping the gun. It's the most common thing you hear, like early on in people's racing career, you're always running faster in the, in the beginning of the race than you should be essentially um, trying to dial that back. So RPE is really, it's really cool. And it, it's, it's funny that I, it took me a long time to come around to that again, but it was, it was stimulated by you. But another thing I kind of want to understand is like, cause you talked about it being a skill, like, I know you can't really put a number on this, but how much do you think that's really enhanced your ability as a runner? Like just practicing RB, practicing that interoception, understanding how much physiological stress you're placing on your body day after day. How do you think that's enhanced your ability as a runner from before, let's just say before you got into ultra marathon training or even really running compared to now? How do, how do you think that's enhanced along the way? Yeah, I think it is enhanced. I think the thing that's enhanced the most is allows you to translate from like one area to an extra one climate to the next. So another kind of unique thing about ultra marathons is they're rarely in a similar setting. So unlike like Olympic track and field where you can more or less guarantee, well, you can guarantee the surface is going to be basically identical from one event to the next. And then it's like maybe a warmer weather events versus cooler weather events and things like that. But with ultra marathon, you might find yourself up in the mountains, you might find yourself on hills, on a flat track, on a road, any, all these different things that are going to change things like pace and change the, even things like heart rate if it's really hot. And then you also have this you, cardiac drift is something we've known about from endurance sport, even for shorter than ultra marathon stuff for some time now. But when you have an event where the research at the moment will indicate you cannot physically stay hydrated during this and nor should you even try to do it like you should actually you should you should obviously take care of yourself but you're not going to arrive at the finish line in optimal conditions being as hydrated as you were at the start there's just no way you're gonna body's gonna keep up so then like understanding rpe for that for all those different changing variables and sometimes they change within the same race like they take something like the western states 100 which is one of the most recognizable 100 mile races in the world and you start off sometimes you start off every year at around 6,000 feet altitude in about 60 degrees climb up to 9,000, and then by mid to late afternoon you're in these canyons where it can be 100 to 110 degrees and you're getting much closer to sea level so even within that race you have all these different like climates and course profiles that are going to change things like your pace and all this other stuff that become a little less reliable or a little less consistent. Whereas RPE is going to stay true to its, to its nature throughout that. Yeah, no, that that's great. Cause I was, I, was, I think I was saying this, like people give the human physiology and anatomy much less credit than it deserves sometimes. Like Mm -hmm. It's ability to detect specific changes. If you tune into that specific changes in the physiology, it's extremely accurate. And we've seen that through research as well. Like people, especially like I say this with people, it's like if, if an athlete knows their relative lactate threshold, a lot of the times they can be more accurate than some of these handheld lactate meters that are way off the mark in terms of validation. Mm -hmm. And people don't want to give some of those things credit. And I think others approach and and obviously I find huge value in, in as you do, I'm sure, in, in lab testing and these physiological metrics because they're, they're, they're an important step of the process of understanding training intervention and response. But uh, I'm liking the comeback of some of these basic interoception kind of concepts of, of how to manage yourself as an athlete. One thing I'm, I'm interested on is when you're 
when you're so the next kind of place I want to move into is training intervention and response just talking about that is when you're designing a program I know now that you've whittled down some of the core tenants that for your roadmap for a race right you've got an event coming up and whatever it is six months and you you've had that whittled down but even let's just say a couple of years back or even years before that how was your process and maybe it's still this way where you're looking at training intervention response do you pull the plug early sometimes on certain blocks because you're seeing whether that's a detriment in certain performance markers or do you just kind of keep the whole the whole and try and follow it through and and that's a training program how do you monitor is it is it mostly through just performance metrics is it through physiological metrics is it through lab testing how do you look at this whole thing as a whole mm -hmm. yeah yeah so the way i look at it and you mentioned jason i think he was maybe one of the first people in the sport of ultra running anyway i know this kind of approach has been around longer than that but he 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 began speaking before anyone else in the sport, I think, about being a little more strategic around both optimizing towards what you're trying to do on race day. So thinking, what am I trying to work towards? What is the goal here? And picking an event that is going to help you guide that. So let, let's say I'm picking a hundred mile race, which is usually going to be like the A race distance that I've been doing. The intensity for that's pretty low relative to most endurance events because it's pretty far along one end of the intensity spectrum. Yeah. So you have this situation where like, if I'm getting up to my aerobic threshold or at my aerobic threshold during a hundred mile race, I'm getting like to that pace or intensity that I probably don't want to cross, or I'm going to start adding time to the end of it because I'm going too fast at any point. Mm -hmm. So with that type of situation, I have an environment that's almost the reverse of say like a 5k training plan where race day intensity is going to be like my short intervals, like my VO2 max workouts. Those are going to be the ones that I'm going to be doing like four to six weeks before my goal race that I'm really trying to fine tune. Mm -hmm. Same process or concept with 100 mile, but you're just going to be a different order of operations. So as long as I have a good, strong foundation in place that I can kind of layer higher intensity and modern intensity sessions on top of, mm -hmm. I'm going to start going into it with least specific to most specific and a lot of that at this point for me, like I, I go in and get some tests done so I can see where I'm at and things from time to time. But in, for the most part, I've gone through the system now enough. I just know like if I go out and start doing short intervals and my pace is X compared to where I know I've gotten to in the past, I can usually ballpark about how long I think I'm going to have to stress that system before I'll have adapted to it enough where I can move on to, to like another intensity or a, in, in this case, it would be a slower intensity that I'm working towards. So rather than this more like high school collegiate kind of style of training where you're going to do short intervals on a Tuesday, like lactate threshold sessions, like tempo yeah. runs or long intervals on Thursday, long run on Sunday races, that sort of structure. Yeah. It's more like be fit, like aerobically foundationally, then yeah. like four to six weeks, roughly targeting short intervals, four to six weeks, targeting longer intervals, and then depending on how those go, probably the four to six weeks, just building out, developing the long run. Mm -hmm. So I really like having that compartmentalization. And I think you can do that when you have distances as long as hundred miles, because an intensity that I can say for 12 to 15 minutes is so unimportant in terms of what I'm going to actually use during a hundred mile race mm -hmm. that for me to have that finely tuned two weeks before the race itself isn't going to necessarily, it's, it's, if anything, it's going to maybe rob from some development somewhere else, or it's going to 
remove my opportunity to work on or to to invest training load in the things that are most specific. So I really like that. And then to go back to some of the stuff we talked about with RPE, I think it just gives you a much better platform to learn that because you find yourself in this situation where I'm spending four to six weeks at a time with my primary focus being this one intensity. And when I have that narrow of a focus, I can really see the development and see where things are progressing and how much volume I can actually build up to with that before you start seeing like a margin of diminishing returns or the fatigue outweigh the benefits, so to speak. Really learn where, where, what I like to talk about sometimes too, is when you zoom out and look at say a four to six week block of training, you really see where your errors were made and where like the proper dosages were, were implemented. So like if I go out and do short intervals, let's say I do like, 20 minutes of total volume at my VO2 max with a, with an interval session, like a one-to-one work rest ratio. Mm -hmm. And I'm just trashed for the next five days. So I don't do another short interval run that week. And I end that week with 20 minutes. Had I gone out and done say 12 minutes instead of 20 on that one session, two days later, I feel good enough to do it again, do 12 more. Now I end that week with 24 minutes of total volume, compound that four to six times over the course of a month and a half. I have more stimulus or more volume spent at that intensity I'm trying to do. So all that will oftentimes like getting the proper dosage in a single session is going to allow you to get higher volume at that intensity in a shorter period of time. And then you're going to be able to move from one area to the next a little bit quicker. So if you have a really long ramp up to your race, say you have like six plus months or something like that, you can probably afford to make some mistakes and go to failure a couple of times in those workouts and just give yourself a little extra time. But if you're on a little bit of a tighter timeline, or if you want to try to squeeze in an extra A race in a year or something like that, I think being really precise in those is important and kind of learning where you're at and how much, how much dose you can give any one workout to get you to where you need to be to move on to the next thing and eventually get to that point where you're developing what you'll be doing on race day is, is really kind of the sweet spot for most people. I like that. There's a few things there where delineating between this kind of conjugate system that is used most universities where it's like every adaptation all at once. We're always going to yeah. be touching on all these things all at once versus more of a block periodized where we're going to really hone in on some of the things that we're looking for to adapt to. And then these will transfer well off to the next thing. And then we're going to get more specific to, to what is needed. But you're laying a foundation, which a lot of the times I think people miss it. If you're training everything all at once, it's really hard to lay a foundation. The time needed to lay a foundation is going to take several years. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, and then the other thing too is you talked about accumulating the time, which I think is great for people to understand. One thing I noticed actually with your training, because I did look at your Strava a few times, and I, I do I see that obviously being a professional athlete, but you have a good kind of consistent basis of high frequency. And I see some, some of this with training with ultra runners is rather low frequency and high volume. So I, I noticed you do a lot of days where you're, you're getting out there and, and applying a short stimulus for whether it is like 20 kilometers or 12 kilometers or anywhere in between that. And then going again and tapping into that to the next day. I'm a big fan of this in pretty much every realm of physical preparation. I think that you can tap into like the signaling, for example, like and I've parsed this out to some degree in the research. I think there's some type of benefit to shutting off a little bit early because I think a lot of the inherent adaptations that we're looking for are not being gained the entire length of some of the volumes that people are putting in. Like I, I, I always think 
it's it's much more of a hindrance to train two to three times in a day but i honestly think that you will gain more in the long run and i've seen this even with some of the tendon research with like keith Barr applying that stimulus for shorter period of times throughout the day more than just that one big stimulus do you do you look at it that is that how you're thinking about it or is it just a, is it a pure kind of like i just need to get the volume in so i'm just trying to run as much as i can throughout the day or do you like trying to split things up as much as possible for for the stimulus do you do you think it's Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's a few things going on there that lead me to structuring it the way I do. One is, like you said, I think when you have any one stimulus and you leave a couple reps in the tank, so to speak, you're putting yourself, you're setting yourself up for a scenario like I described before, where you can go back and do a little bit more sooner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And over the, if you look at like the calendar year for me, you're going to see a lot more kind of consistent uh, training versus these ebbs and flows where it's like, oh, wow, what a heroic training block versus <laughs> look, now he's not ran for three weeks <laughs> scenario. And I think you, you do need to pivot from that to some degree when you get to like the end stages of a training plan, because there's just no yeah. way around preparing your body for something that's going to take you all day, sometimes multiple days, depending on what event you're doing yeah. without doing this, like a big bolus. But I mean, from a physiological standpoint, we're not looking at a terrible amount of time required to get yourself ready for that. If you did all the right things leading into it, like a good six weeks of just some back-to-back long runs, and then having those bigger bolus stimuluses, say on the weekends to make room for that race specific type work. It also just gives you the opportunity to be a little more, a little more tame in those other days during the week versus what you'd maybe see on my training plate for like those first, maybe two thirds of the block where I'm going to be a little more consistent in terms of output from one day to the next versus like one really big day and then complete day off or something like that. Also with that, I think you have this situation where, and this is, I would say this is most likely almost all mental like training to a degree like if you do like if I have let's say I have a day where I have on the to-do list for training is like two hours worth of running 15 minutes worth of mobility and 30 minutes worth of strength and resistance or something like that breaking that up throughout the course of the day it may be into two training sessions for running a, a mobility session and then a strength session I find that it just prepares me mentally just to be ready to be active across the day versus ingraining this muscle memory into oh I do all my physical labor from 6 a.m to 9 a.m and then it's just sitting in the desk chair or lounging on the couch the rest of the day because on race day I need to be moving all day like there's no like three hours of work then sitting around if I want to have a successful outing so I think like it prepares me mentally to be able to navigate an environment in which I'm asking my body to get up and do stuff and it it almost hacks your brain to a bit because even if you have like you have breaks in between those sessions but when you piece it together in your mind at the end of the day of what you did it feels like an all day of movement and activity versus getting a little more complacent and and stationary so to speak yeah that's yeah the way you put it there is is is, i like it because i think people forget this if you're if you're going out for a three-hour run it's a very different thing than splitting that into two one and a half hour runs the muscle damage incurred incurred from the last hour and a half of that three-hour run is going to be very different than those two separate one hour and 30 minute sessions there's and and that's why things like tss score and some of these other things out there 
used to to model fatigue and stress and they don't always work that well when we're talking about at the trying to get into the cellular level what's going on right uh, but just inherently yeah and because I, I think you've probably noticed this too the the recovery just physical movement is such an important process for recovery and I think people think of a lot of their training as like this bodybuilder type mentality where it's like smash yourself go lay on the couch and eat as much as possible. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a time and a place for that. Maybe when we're coming towards the end of the event, we need to apply that stimulus, but day-to-day -day training and becoming ready and building these things long-term and having longevity, I think those constant little pulses. And I think you see that with whether it's endocrinology, understanding a more pulse response is always going to provide a better stimulus rather than this huge bolus dump of, of whatever type of, of, of hormone or response you're looking at. But anyways, I'm going down the weeds here, but uh, yeah, no, I, I think that that was good to share with people into the kind of structuring of your, your daily setup during certain portions. So yeah. And on. I think to, I was just going to say, and Clay, it's a little, you kind of were alluding to there too, is I think like, if you look at it from a quality standpoint too, I, if I were to do all my running first thing in the morning and then all my mobility and strength directly after that, like by the mm -hmm. time I got to the resistance training side of things, <laughs> like the quality of that session would likely be compromised to some degree versus if I'm doing it at like 5 PM and have had a chance to like have a couple meals, rehydrate, yeah. get out of the heat if it's summer and things like that. And just find yourself in a little bit more of a, an optimal situation to, to maximize your time versus be hanging on for hanging on to it, just try to get, to get through it, I guess. Yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Especially when you're talking about lifting too. And I think that's, that's another hard thing for people to realize is like, if you're trying to adapt, whether it's concurrent training, supplemental training, however you look at it, hybrid training for some people, when you're trying to adapt to several different stimuluses, especially at the beginning of the year, when you're trying to tap on different things, build different qualities, a lot of people just lump it into one thing. Like, oh, I'm going to tack on my workout to the end of my run. And I get it. A lot of people have busy lives. So if, if they don't do it that way, it's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. But I totally understand. But when, when we're talking about trying to, to do things optimally, there is an important factor to play about sequencing certain things around the day and being very cognizant around the intention that's going to be provided in that specific workout. And I think, especially when you're, you're trying to be on the edge of performance, that starts to become much and much more important, but yeah. But how does some of these things change now for individuals that you, you may coach like a, an individual, because I, I don't want people to think that all this stuff is going to be super important to hit on when you're just starting out running ultra running. Like how does this change for, for you when you, when you're dealing with an athlete, when you're dealing with someone that you coach, what are the main keys that you're trying to use with them for an individual that's just starting out in the sport? What are the big things that you're trying to hit on with them? Yeah, really good question. I think I'm going to follow a similar philosophy as to what I do, but we're going to scale it to where they're at and then also pay attention to some of their strengths and weaknesses and how those may differ from me. So if you look at like me as a runner historically throughout my career, I tend to be someone who responds to volume in a way where I can do a ton of it. And the injury risk is usually pretty low. Like I have had very few injuries in my career at all. And the ones that I have had have usually come from speed work, not from building yeah. out long runs and things like that. 
Whereas I've got some clients who are the opposite. I could send them probably a speed session every other day and they would bounce right back from it. But if I start getting too crazy with their long runs and be doing back-to-back long runs and things like that, they find themselves in a situation where they're no longer staying healthy enough. So I do have to be a little mindful of how I'm going to program that and what sort of time we're putting in between those type of sessions, what type of terrain we're doing them on. Like, for example, if I have a If I have a coaching client who's real kind of touch and go with speed work, we might need to adapt that to something that's going to be a little less impact inducing. So it'd be something like their short intervals or the higher intensity workouts might be done uphill Mm -hmm. or in some cases, even like completely off of running if necessary. I think when you get into these hillier courses... Yeah, it's like, I mean, biking is not a direct translation to running, obviously, but when you get into courses that have a lot of climbing, all of a sudden biking is a little more mechanically equivalent versus say like trying to run a fast marathon or a fast 10K or something like that on the roads. So like there are ways I think to still get the cardiovascular movement that we're looking for without the necessary, the damaging, potential damaging elements of what a traditional short interval might look like. And the nice thing is most of the folks I'm coaching are ultra marathon athletes. We're not nearly as concerned with their leg turnover and things like that, because mm. the pace they're going to be going, isn't going to be, be a scenario where they really need it. So if I can lower the injury risk for them and still get the benefits we're looking for in terms of how they're going to develop over the course of the plan, when we get to like that long run development so that they're doing those at the highest possible quality that they're able to do. Mm. That's a big win. Um, The big thing though, usually is just like trying to pin down exactly where they're at and where they're going to be able to get at for any one given training plan. So like if I have someone who comes to me with 24 weeks before their goal hundred mile race, it's hard to put like an arbitrary number down of like, we need to get you to be running like this many hours per week or this many miles per week or whatever metric you want to use for that, because we have to start where they're at. And if that person's been running, say, 20 miles a week for the past year, and that's when they started running, we're just not going to build them up to, I'm, I'm certainly not going to start them off at like a 50 mile training week. And we're probably not going to build them up to a hundred mile training weeks on that particular block. That might be something they get to eventually if they really like want to take the sport seriously, invest a bunch of time into it and be patient, but trying to get them where they'll be in three years on month six is just a losing battle. And it's probably going to get them hurt, tired and wanting to quit. So you want to scale to where they're at and then build from there. And usually that's just about finding the right starting point and then do what I like to call micro stressing. So following the same philosophy within reason, but then like trying to like, let's add a little extra stimulus from what you've gotten used to already so that we generate that kind of growth response. And then once you recover from that, let's do this again. So there's a lot of things that go into that. Like we try to look at like, what's your sleep quality like? What's your, just your general life stress look like? Mm -hmm. Uh, Where are we going to be able to put workouts for you? And are they conducive for like certain types of workouts or not? So for me, it's like, I can build my schedule around my training. So then if I put Mm -hmm. my training in the best spot, then everything else can fall into place. Most people don't have that such situation. So it's going to be like, well, if they're, if they're running at say 4am versus 3pm, like mm-hmm. we probably have a, a weather variable to consider. And that might dictate how we look at the data from their workout or use their data as it goes across an entire training plan. If that weather changes drastically throughout the course of it and things like that. No, I, 
that was all great especially when you talked about using various modalities like i'm a, I'm a huge believer in this is what are the specific adaptations that we're trying to gain here what are the detriments to doing it the traditional way is there a way that we can improve that and trying to leave our biases at home like you talked about using cycling i'm a big fan of that or or, or for various reasons let's just talk about even like downhill running as well can mm -hmm. we apply some eccentric load and other means without having your joints and tendons, which are going to take much longer to adapt to this kind of stimulus. Can we still give your muscles a little bit of a stimulus there without putting you under the bus and telling you to go run fast downhill? And the same thing with, with uphill running, like concentric versus running is, is inherently a very lower leg isometric type of movement. Like your muscles are essentially being used isometrically. And a lot of the work and energy that you're getting back is out of your, out of your tendons, right? For the most part, if, if you have good tendon qualities and, and you are progressing in your running technique, essentially when we're running uphill, that's a completely different thing going on uh, on the muscular level and the type of contraction. So can we gain those things in other ways? Is there other ways we can do that? Even if you don't have the ability to get out to a hill, would a bike be sufficient? And on the other side of that, like whether it's aerobically, like in the metabolic terms, like are you trying to build more mitochondria? Are you trying to build more vasculature, like angiogenesis, right? Can we approach that? Is, is the bike going to deteriorate from your ability to do that? Well, if it's not, this might be a good stimulus because you're beat up today. We can still get you some more metabolic stimulus without mm -hmm. giving you that kind of that damage that you, you're looking for. And we know that the body is much more resilient to handling that type of stress in the lower aerobic zones. And especially with running, right? Like if you look at the volume, like I look at your volume being on one of the higher ends for runners, right? Like when I look through running data, everyone out there, you're on the higher end for sure. Um, um, but still, comparing it to a cyclist, a Tour de France cyclist, or or whatever else, a cross country skier, it's kind of like that would be a low week for for some of them, right? So sure. why is that? Why are the reason that they're allowed to train more? Well, there's if we break it down, deconstruct it. So it was really good to hear you talk about that because there's this huge fear I see with with running coaches that are like, oh, we can't do anything other than running because it's going to take your time away from. And I get it. There's the skill of running. So, but yeah, it was good to hear you hit on that because I think that's especially for beginners, it's a great mm -hmm. way to to expose them to stimulus. Yeah. And I think that opportunity opens up way wider when you get into like the mountain ultra races too, where like a lot of the stuff I've done, I've done mountain races and things and trail races as well, but it's a little trickier, I think on flat surfaces where everything is going to be like mechanically uniform throughout the course yeah. of that day. Yeah. At that point, you have to say, I got to try to actually generate the impact required to build those strong tendons and ligaments and muscles yeah. to be able to tolerate that movement. When you get into the mountain stuff, you get a little more forgiveness and a little more like I should a little a little more variance from like yeah. one section of the course to the next. And the the European ultra runners really I think highlighted this well over the last few years, where you might see some of these professionals like not run a step for a couple months during the winter. They're just out there ski yeah. mountaineering, yeah. and they're just building that really strong lower body and an upper body to some degree as well, just like going up and down on that almost impact free session. Yeah. And they can put in massive hours. Yeah. So when they get around to training for their running type stuff, not only is the stuff they're going to be training to on the train going to be a little lower impact, at least on the uphill sections of it, that they've built up the framework to be able to tolerate, say, like a 30-hour training week when they're peaking. 
mm-hmm. uh, is not going to be like going like doubling their volume to do that. Like it would be if if someone like myself decided to go and run for 30 hours, not only would I probably break and get injured, but it would also be a huge volume increase that I probably wouldn't be ready for if I wasn't doing some other things that kept my body moving and pushing up into that, that volume side of things. So yeah. And then, I mean, most recently here in the States, we've seen some success with that too, where like Rob Crar won the the Leadville 100 a couple of years ago off of basically just mountain biking. And then Dakota Jones, same thing with what was it? I think Pikes Peak Marathon mm-hmm. this is probably a couple of years ago. He, he, I think he won it and he was basically did that off, off bike training for the most part. So I mean, we're starting to see like, there's some application here, especially for these like kind of more unique terrain type events where there's a little more crossover from some of the other the other sports that kind of get you on those terrains so i'd like to take a quick moment here to introduce you to a new sponsor of the show which is moxie monitor now i'm sure you've heard phil and i discuss moxie monitor or nearest devices on the podcast before or perhaps maybe a guest that i've had on the show um, speak on moxie or nearest devices Now, what Moxie is, it's essentially detecting oxygen saturation at the level of the tissue that it's placed over, which can be extremely useful for sports performance, training intervention, understanding different profiles in athletes, desaturation slopes, um, resaturation kinetics, also, you know, connections to ventilatory thresholds or lactate thresholds, um, you know, day-to-day readiness, there is no shortage of use for near infrared spectroscopy like moxie so if you guys want to get a five percent discount on a device i'll leave a link to that in the show notes uh, it's oxpo in the promo code box um, and you'll get a five percent discount so just want to say thanks to moxie and this has been one of the most reliable devices i've used in my practice with myself and athletes so Shout out to Moxie. Yeah. No, that that was great. Yeah. That and yeah, there, there's yeah, when I think about it too, and that that I think that's why we see some of the differences we see versus the European mountain heavy runners when they come run flatter stuff versus versus the people that kind of specialize. There's huge variance in there. And people just peg it as, oh, it's just this one sport, but there's so many things within yeah. ultra that are so specific. And and it's it's a lot like martial arts. That's like almost complete different disciplines where people have their specialties. Yeah, one thing I would actually like to talk about is just managing that uniform stress because that just repetitive nature on that flat surface and just the, the the tedious nature of continuing in that same gait pattern over and over and over again. What are some of the considerations like you just talked about applying that kind of same stress over and over again? How much do you vary you know, your terrain and in, in training? Like, obviously, I'm guessing it's more general to specific, but when you're training for, for maybe a track ultra marathon, how many months on the track or how many months on a flat surface do you feel you need to feel comfortable putting those outputs on there and this, having the sufficient stimulus? of Mm -hmm. flat running yeah it's a great question i think when it comes to doing a flat course i think you have a little more you have a little more monotony in terms of what i think you can get away with since the entire course is on that terrain you are asking yourself to do that for a longer period of time consistently with no breaks. Whereas like if I'm doing a mountain race, if I get down and do some road running a couple days a week, that that might be good for me because even on the mountain courses, there are usually some runnable sections where that might translate as a benefit. You're trying to be a little bit more of a jack of all trades with that scenario. So you can spread it out a little better with something like tunnel Hill or a track. It's like you said, there's no way around it. You got that same gate pattern all day long. Mm -hmm. The areas that get hit the hardest in that pattern have to be 
rock solid and ready to go, or you're going to have something to limit you on that, on that particular type of terrain. So for the flatter ones, I find it a little more important to stay consistent on a flat as much as possible. I try to be practical though, because it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, you got to, you got to manage the boredom and the monotony too, and keep it exciting and fun, or you're going to arrive at the, at the race so sick of what you were doing that you're not even motivated to be there anymore. And then you just beat yourself mentally which yeah. in a sport like ultra marathon running is something you just don't want to do. That's probably going to be a bigger like detriment than not being entirely in shape even in some mm-hmm. cases. So I do like to try to keep it pretty consistent on the flats throughout the whole plan. I'll, I'll usually what I'll do is I'll say like, okay, on Sundays, I'm going to go and do this trail run or something like that. My best example was in 2015, I was training for the Desert Solstice Track Invitational. It's living in California at the time. So six days a week, I would run on the flats like usually most of those four or five of them i'd actually just run to about two and a half miles from the u to the uc davis track and just do my entire run on that track mm-hmm. and then run back and that was going to be like my main main workout for the wow. day but then on saturdays i would drive to mill valley and run with the san francisco running company team where they would do like just these beautiful trail routes through through mill valley and the bay area and it would usually be like like three or four kind of distinct climbs of say like two to three miles up and then down. And for me, I felt like that was kind of like served twice. One was like every week I had this little bit of a reprieve from the track or the flats where it's like, I can get to there, I can get something different and that'll reset my mind and that'll be ready for the next six days. And then also I think like sort of like when you look at just strength training protocols for, for endurance athletes, we're looking at like one to two quality lower body sessions per week is going to likely get you where you need to be in terms of in terms of helping your running related efforts. So once a week, you get out on some trails that have a little more significant amount of climbing and descending, you're just exposing your body to a little bit more of that muscular contraction that you're going to get with like a box step or like a forward lunge when you're going uphill, and then you're going to get that eccentric load from running consistently downhill. And even though those don't necessarily always translate perfectly to flat running. I think they just help you keep a little more balance and a little less like strength and weakness build with your body from running the same exact like 400 meter loop or flat terrain area. That's going to probably keep you a little more resilient over time and a little less prone to overuse injuries and things like that when you keep that small stimulus in there. Yeah. It's funny because that brings up something that I've taken from John Kiley is that motor unit enslavement. When Whenever you spend so much time at a specific intensity range, at a specific gait style, whatever it is, sometimes you can, you can drive that groove so deep that now there's zero variability and the risk mm-hmm. for injury is super high, right? Because yeah. that, that pattern in the brain is so deep that any tr- like you can't deviate out of it whatsoever. I'm sure you felt that when you lose that any other gear, you just had that one gear and it takes some time to, to try and realize, oh, okay, yeah, if I keep a little bit of stimulus outside of this, okay, that'll protect me, give me a little bit more movement options, a little bit more variability in my gait because we know that if you were just to go out and run, that's the whole point of why we vary paces outside of just the physiological adaptations. It's, it's good for the brain. And that's why even I, I think, you know, what we're starting to realize with neuromuscular fatigue, I think a lot of the reasons keeping high intensity in there, keeping some strength training to some degree around if it's appropriate is, is really good for, for not just the physical qualities, but the neurological qualities of sending that signal. And I mean, they're always inherently tied, but I think it's important to expose your nervous system to those kind of higher intensity types of efforts, whether that's in the weight room or, but that was interesting, man. Like that, that's, I think that's a good way to, 
to try and realize that you can reward yourself in training too, because I'm the type of individual, and I know others out there like me, that you'll you'll just suffer alone for I don't know how long and just give yourself the same stimulus. And if you don't reward yourself in training, that's how consistency falls off for a lot of people is like understanding. I think a big thing for for individuals out there that are trying at any sport to get better or progress is understanding your triggers for inconsistency. Like understanding what is it that inherently takes you further away from your goal, honing in on those specific things and trying to find solutions to not getting back on that same problem. So like you talked about going out to run with, not that that was your problem was consistency, but you know, going out to run with those people gave you enough variance and enough mental reprieve, which brought into another topic, which is psychology, something I want to talk about. And I heard you do a podcast recently where you spoke on you really like the high intensity efforts for practicing that kind of friction that you're going to encounter in the race. Now, it's going to be a different rate of of that friction that you're seeing because you're doing a high intensity effort. But yeah, what are some of the strategies and training that you use to approach, whether it's maybe cognitive training for focus or maybe it's self-talk or some of these pillars around self-efficacy and sports psychology? What are some of the things that you use to try and get your get your mind right? for, for sure. businesses. Yeah, I love this question. I've been thinking about this one because I've answered this one in, like in a similar way a bunch of times, but I, th- I think it's super applicable and it's real specific to ultra marathon, so I like it, but there's other ones as well that that I I want to share as well so people have ideas to be doing this throughout the entire training plan. Mm-hmm. And like if I'm earlier in the plan, I'm doing say short intervals. Mm-hmm. The hard part with those is it's it's high intensity, so you're looking at this environment where you white knuckle to some degree and (laughs) like your brain works differently there. Like it's almost like there's so much physical discomfort in a short time frame. Your brain can only really process so much. It's like these quick kind of like real, real, real snappy decisions that you don't really have any opportunity to second guess. Whereas the discomfort that you get at, at say like mile 70 of 100 miles is still very hard to tolerate for your brain, but it's slow motion. So you have time to think about it. You have time to fixate on it. You have time to let like negative self-talk really creep in. So even if you try to consciously make a decision of like, okay, I'm going to keep moving forward, you can still be thinking about every little step in a different way than you can. So it's like, how do you practice that when you're doing short intervals? And what I like to do is like, stop fixating on the short interval part of it itself and fixate more on the parts of that workout where your brain can second guess itself, where it can create that negative self-talk and how you deal with it. So if I'm doing say like two minutes on two minutes off, like a real VO two max session, those two minutes on, I'm just going to do those at the intensity I know is right and try to just, just laser focus. But then when I'm doing that two minute easy recovery jog, I am going to practice like that whole routine of, oh, I'm two of these in and I've got six more to do. And you start having that like, well, maybe, maybe six is, or maybe <laughs> six totals enough. You have that yeah, opportunity yeah. to say like, to just say, to, to really back up because really the, the hard part with ultras is you get yourself in a situation where if you start thinking too far ahead, mm. that's where you invite the negativity. Same yeah. with the short interval sessions. If I got 12 two-minute sessions to do and I'm already thinking about the 12th rep at the second rep, yeah. that's a long way to go and a lot of hurt to get through in my mind that I haven't even approached yet physically. So yeah. learning to kind of like 
focus on the next one versus the end one there teaches you to do that. I think a little bit more consistently or intuitively when you get to the part where you're doing it at race pace and in that setting. Then when you do get to the like actual aspect of how do I actually do this within the context of running the intensity that's required for hundred miles versus short intervals, that's where I really lean on the long runs. So if I'm doing six weeks of long run development before I'm tapering, I've got a situation there where I'm probably going to do 12, maybe even up to 15 long runs total in that time frame. Mm-hmm. So that gives me 12 to 15 opportunities to just practice the visualization and the the mindset required to close out that last part of the race. So if I'm getting my long run stretched out pretty far, like to 30 miles and doing that close to a dozen times, I might have this opportunity where I can really visualize what it's going to feel like from 70 to hundred, a bunch of times. So then when I get to that point on race day, I don't feel like I'm reaching back to the last time I ran hundred miles to remember what the strategy is. Yeah. I'm pulling from tools. I developed strategies. I developed weeks ago versus maybe half a year to a year ago, or whenever I ran that last hundred mile. And that's assuming that last hundred mile went well, which isn't always yeah, the case. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, trying to carry over the uh, the last experience sometimes. Yeah, I hear you there. Mm-hmm. Which which yeah. you talking about? And it's funny because when I was trying to understand, what are the differences in endurance? Like, where does the line of endurance come into play? Because we read it in the textbooks, we read it in the research of what's defined at over this 180 seconds, whether <laughs> whether it's whatever type of effort. And that was where I really started to try and desec like what type of psychology what type of mental strategies work better for one versus versus the other one thing i know that you've used a little bit here and there is cold because i'm a huge fan of of cold water immersion i've been keeping up with the research on this i think there's a lot of like misconceptions around cold i think there's some loss like there's this new type of of movement in science where like just because we don't understand something fully or maybe because we don't understand why it makes an athlete feel better that it's just inherently useless. But I think I'm on this kind of train w- with certain people. Is I think the in, the psychological environment and the neurological environment is very important for an athlete's long-term success. And I think cold is a great tool for providing some specific attributes to that. And I think it inherently lowers RPE after. I think your ability to, to handle some of these training volumes and just your psycholo- psych- psychology around training is much better after coming out of the cold, but also it's giving you, like you said, that kind of that, however long you're doing it, depending on some people, but it gives you this opportunity to deal with sitting in this uncomfortable position. What are my strategies? You start looking at the time you start, it's another kind of opportunity there as well. I mean, health benefits aside, adaptations that are beneficial for whatever aside, I think it gives some just good qualities that that help have you found it to be that way or what why do you use it yeah i love this topic so i love doing like intervals of cold water immersion because it in your brain it's literally like doing a short interval session and like you so you're carving that pathway you're you're dealing with this situation where you're like all right if i can handle discomfort for three minutes and just like an interval a lot of times it is like that first, like that first third or so of it is like, Oh, this is, this is awkward. I don't know if I could do this. I don't, and then you settle in you're like, okay, this isn't too bad. And then you you get in that rhythm. And then once you get better at expecting that you start to have faith that you're going to be able to do it. And it becomes a little, you have a little more calmness once you kind of 
develop that repetition of doing it enough times where you start to you start to trust that that same response you get every time is actually going to happen versus yeah. thinking like, well, this time it's going to be different and I'm going to be in the most pain I've ever been in my life for that last minute of this interval. I mean, that same thing with that cold water, like you get in and out for like three minute blocks, you get this reminder of like discomfort, discomfort, and then the reprieve or the satisfaction and how good it feels to like step out and be like, oh, I just did that hard thing. I think it reminds us of that kind of that psychological payoff for doing hard things. And it almost rewires your thought process of like what a hard, what where the benefits are with doing something hard. It gets you through that kind of early like resistance stage in the beginning of not wanting to do something because you know, it is going to be difficult, even though, you know, it's going to, you're going to feel rewarded at the end. I really like it. So it's like an impact free training session for your mind, essentially. Like I can maybe get away with a couple short interval sessions a week when I'm, when I'm really priming that side of the training schedule. But you know, I can hop into some cold water a few times a week and, and practice the mental side of that without a whole, without really any, any big detriments. And then to the, like, to the anti cold water immersion stuff, I think it's like from, I could be wrong about this, but I think like most of the research done that shows like, uh, like cold water immersion being counterproductive for like muscle development or, mm. or strength acquisition are done on like pretty long intervals of like up to say like 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that there's any good research that would indicate that that's the case for something short, like a two to three minute bout where you're, you're, you're not sitting in there for prolonged periods of time. But yeah, I think I, I, I like it probably just as much for like, just the, the way it, it addresses kind of like the mental aspect of my day, as much as anything, I think hopping out of the a cold plunge. I always feel like it's almost like a shot of espresso to some degree in terms of yeah. motivation versus actually having to tax my my system with actual caffeine or something like that on that regular basis. No, yeah, it's it's true. Like your your perspective on training as soon as you get out of there is it's much different than before you got in. And I think that's important. And you're and you're right. Like a lot of the a lot of the research that is used is says, hey, look, this 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 is seeming to maybe blunt hypertrophy, but you know, its effects on endurance are still really not understood well. There could be an inherent benefit depending on how it's placed during the day. Mm-hmm. Also with strength too, it's not it's not clear cut. And when you think about the basis of strength versus the base of hypertrophy, yeah, they, they have overlapping kind of qualities, but it's not the same. I think that what's going to affect strength training and, and strength uh, adaptations differently than it would hypertrophy. But yeah, I, I don't really, I just feel like now is the kind of climate where people like to... I don't know, being a, a contrarian or being provocative is, is in right now. So you're seeing some <laughs> of that, but yeah, I think I've, I, it's cool to hear your thoughts on it because I'm, I'm in the camp too, is those short doses. Cause you're right in the literature, it's like 10 minutes, 15 minutes at some of these different temperatures. I think the one to two minute, a three minute, four minute kind of range is, is great. Like, especially if you're doing intervals of it, I think it's a great kind of exposure for people to start at and and you're getting a lot of the benefits, I think, probably rather than I think the curve on that is is much more sharper than people think. But another thing I'm interested to hear your take on is how do you view like the development of ultra marathon? Because I think now we're starting to see specialization in specific sports come into play. And I think I heard somewhere the other day about it. Well, there's one, there was a female that run 100 plus ultra marathon, the youngest female to run 100 plus marathon, uh, ultra marathons. And then there was another individual that had ran a 100K at, I want to say 14 or something like that. 
I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. But what are some of the kind of considerations to take around ultra marathon running? Because for a lot of people, it's this approach where it's like, you just, the goal is to get an ultra marathon in it, and it might not long-term development, right? Because I see those as two different paths, especially when we're talking about developing yourself. Where do you see some people maybe go wrong? Because you coach as well, right? Like you coach lots of ultra runners. Where do you see people maybe misguided in their approach to making it somewhat sustainable or being successful in the first place? Yeah, I think if we're looking at the entire community as a whole, it's probably the biggest the biggest hurdle for people to get over is getting almost too too excited about it to the point where you find yourself like chasing like way more events than you should be doing so you're basically racing recovering racing recovering or mm -hmm. try like a mad dash to get to 100 miles it's like yeah, yeah. it's it's different from area to area or region to region to some degree but in the, in the US there's like a huge premium on the 100 mile distance for whatever reason mm -hmm. so you get a little bit of you get you get this attitude of I want to do that right away but like I may not have a running background at all which isn't impossible and it's not even always discouraged it's kind of like you want to make sure you're doing it in the right way which is starting where you're at and building up to it and that might mean doing your first ultra marathon at a level of training that in a few years you'll look back on and be like wow i was i did that 100 miler on half the volume that i'm doing now but mm. the reason you're still doing it now is because you did that first one at half the volume mm. that you're doing now because you gave yourself that that ability to slow ramp your way into it because mm. i think the human body is super resilient and really does grow with you if you give it the right amount of time. So when I look at my own trajectory into the sport, I didn't do this on purpose. I got, I was just lucky essentially where when I got into running, I didn't take it super seriously early on. In fact, my freshman year in high school, I didn't even do cross country. I did football because I thought I'd make yeah. more friends doing football. <laughs> and awesome. so I was like, I, was, I wasn't entirely invested as like this running phenom by any stretch of the imagination or anything like that. And, yeah. and then by the time I started even consistently training year round, I was a senior in high school. So going into college, I was in an environment where a lot of my peers were, had already been running about twice as much as I had. So my, my collegiate career was also just kind of like learning exactly why we were doing specific workouts and figuring out like that, how do I add more volume to my training to get to the point where I can maximize my potential. And by the time I got to be running high volume. I was like in my mid twenties, essentially, mm -hmm. and had been already had been running in some shape or form for about 10 years. So like there is this, I think when people get into ultra running, there's this big premium on volume because the distance that you're trying to do is high volume. And it just makes sense in your mind. If I'm going to run hundred miles, I better be running a lot. And with that mindset, if you get too narrow focused on it, you leave a lot on the table. Like some of the stuff we've talked about in this podcast, like speed work development, which even though it's very unspecific to race day intensity, there's huge values in doing that. And from a development standpoint and just a health and well-being standpoint that I think are going to keep you in the sport. So for the average person thinking about ultra marathon, I think like don't discredit shorter distance stuff. Don't look at it as like, oh, well, this isn't the grand prize. Like, like embrace it, enjoy it. Cause like you may get to a point where you do get to hundred miles eventually and look back and be like, man, I wonder what would have happened if I would have really tried to run a fast 50 K or, 
a fast 80k or even even a 10k so it just depends on where you're starting at and that's why I, I really do like it when people come into ultra running with some sort of running background at like the olympic distance stuff first so they've gone through full training blocks of like a little more of a periodized schedule than what some people might do in ultra running and have that background experience that development that adaptation that you're only going to get from doing years and years of something when it comes to just like the competitive side of the sport one thing i've seen change a lot and this isn't perfect but it has gotten better is when i first got into the sport there was a lot of like people just like going all in on it and not even from a professional standpoint of like okay i need to race 10 times a year in order to make a career out of it some of these folks were doing that and working a full-time job and it was just like this this almost tragic scenario where you'd see like just super promising runners come in and wreck shop for like two or three years and then all of a sudden never to be heard of again or constantly injured like year after year after year after that. I think we're seeing a lot more strategy with that now where people realize I can't probably win the most competitive 50K, 100K, 100 mile, 24 hour in the same year. I probably have to pick a couple A races and ideally like the terrain is going to need to be somewhat consistent or I maybe have to pick one I prioritize. So like for me, I've prioritized more runnable courses usually. So like the foundation of my training, the foundation of my, my, my goal races are typically around more runnable courses. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give myself the flexibility to like when I really, really recognize that I've like pinged that system too many times where I'm losing the motivation to want to really do the training for it, that I switch and do something a little more trail mountain based so that I can reset on that side of things. Mm-hmm. So I think that's how you like leverage that the proper way. Pick pick what you enjoy, the aspect of the sport you enjoy and make that kind of your focal point. Use that as the primary like goal race type that you're going to target, but don't close the door to the other stuff. And if you're going to do frequent racing, be honest with yourself and use them as high quality long runs versus I'm going to go to the well and ring myself dry eight times a year. Cause I think those types of scenarios are what has you in and out of the sport quickly. And it's tough though. Cause I mean, it's, it's a sport now where you can have a career in it, especially if you're willing to like build like some sort of brand or some sort of thing around your, your training and racing so that you're not, you're just doing the training and racing stuff. So you have this, this, this scenario of like, I need to compete. And in order to stay relevant, I need to be winning races and things like that. So you have to, since the sport has gotten competitive now, I think most people are realizing like in order for that to be more than a a couple of years, they do have to be a little more strategic about how they're planning their, 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 like their peak races and things like that. That was a great answer. Cause I, I was worried after I finished that question, I was like, I didn't really explain that question that well. But it was perfect. It it hit on exactly everything. And one thing I heard that, which I don't hear a lot of people talk, is like training for training. Like when you talked about, especially training for longevity and training to be able to handle those 100 mile weeks because you did it in a certain way. It's like, it comes back to the whole high intensity thing. Like you, you, you ring up, you can only get so much adaptation in the beginning out of a certain type of stimulus, like whether it's below your, your, your VT1, below your LT1 and, and adding some of those higher intensities it's an improving your aerobic fitness to be able to ha- handle more training stress down the road. Like all these things they have places of, and, and, and I think that's a big shift. And like, of what you just said is like, understand that a lot of your training might be just for training to be able to train better. You know what I mean? It's the same as like recovery. We look at recovery as being able to allow us to 
train more. And that's why some people abuse PEDs, right? It's because they want to be able to recover better so they can train sure. more. Speed um, it up. Yeah, exactly. So looking at training as sometimes being able to, and like you talked about splitting up and, and, and basically high frequency that's so you can handle more training, right? It's training for training, but yeah, that was, those were all great points. And like what you talked about is I think it's going to be really, really useful for, for folks to see some of the pitfalls because especially with new sports, there's a lot of like, cause I even go through the process too. Like you go on, like I said in the beginning, the forms you go through, but a lot of people, that's just their, that's their stop point. It's like, what, what am I hearing on the forms? And sometimes what is, what you're hearing on the forums isn't from always the people that have made a successful career and had, had some longevity in the sport. So I think it's good to hear from someone like yourself has been doing it so long at such a high level, like with any sport, I think those are the people that you should be paying attention to, right? It's not always the, the, the individual that, especially like we know this with other sports that just come out wham, bam, and they're, they're, they're putting up great numbers and, and smashing records like right away. It's people that continuously are at the top for that long period of time there's probably something in there the reason why they're able to do that so long um mm -hmm. one of one of the other things that i'd like to get into before we end it today is like what are some of the the things that you've been interested in lately whether that's like investigating yourself for your own training that can be training modalities that can be different type of recovery modalities it could be just different areas of physiology or maybe it's just aspects of, of cognitive training focused training sports psychology what are, what are some of the things that you're interested in around your sport that you've been interested in kind of diving into deeper lately yeah there's a few things i think like the last two or three years, I've just been way more intentional with like the psychological approach to it. And using that, like kind of like what I described before by like looking at any given training session as not only an opportunity to stress myself physically to prepare myself for the race, mm. but also like where are the lessons and the tools that I can develop and use and pull from, from the mental side of it. So that when I'm standing on the start line of a race, it's not just about trusting that I'm physically repaired, but it's also trusting that when I hit a rough patch, which is inevitable when you're running all day, like there's going to be points that are lower than others or points when you have like that, that negative voice creep in. It's like, how do you have a robust enough tool set to address those and redirect quick enough so that you're not, you're not hemorrhaging time in a way that's going to like really slow you down. So that's been a big one. The other one is just kind of like the... The, the just the stuff that kind of comes along the non-running related trainings type of stuff so like what are some what are what are some like where, where can i find consistency and like strength work and mobility and like the resistance type stuff that are going to be beneficial for for what i'm trying to do and things like focusing on like movement patterns and muscle development and strength that are the things that people are not really thinking about. Like people go into the strength room and think, well, I got to strengthen my quads, my glutes, my hamstrings, my calves, mm -hmm. biceps, packs, so the, yeah. the, the key muscles, right? Mm -hmm. Where in reality, it's like, when you think about it, like when you're doing a sport like running, where there is a power weight ratio, which, you know, it's going to be different from person to person, but there's going to be a consistency within that too, where like the, certain muscles are going to have a little more bang for their buck in the sense that like they're small muscles, but if you can get them very strong, they can be very helpful in, in weird little things like 
maintaining form at the end of the race or not not creating an imbalance to the point where now something else breaks down and gets injured. So things like hip flexor strength or tibialis strength and things like that, where like if I make my hip flexor twice as strong as it was before, yeah. like the the reward for that is huge. Because my 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 hip flexor muscle isn't gonna like add multiple pounds of weight to me and slow me down in any meaningful way. Like if I just started doing bicep curls all day long or something like that. Yeah. So there's like I think getting a little more intentional with that has been something I've done a lot more of. And the third one is just kind of like, and this happens to me historically whenever I've gotten injured is you have this like clearing of the slate to some degree because it's like oh I can't run so I just freed up 15 hours a week or so that would have been spent out there running and sometimes depending on what the injuries there's some cross training involved there but a lot of times it's it's like gym work and mobility work and almost every time I find something that I was either ignoring or normalizing and not not thinking far enough to really know was something I should be addressing mm -hmm. and, and then working on it. And it's always fun to do that. So I've been doing a little bit more of that with just like, like range of motion and mobility and things like my ankles and my hips and stuff like that as, as focus points where the, the way, the way I like to think about it is like, if you can get your, your feet and your hips in the right spot, it sort of makes the knee area passive. And I hadn't really thought about that. I mean, I guess I knew it, but I wasn't really thinking about it in depth enough to really like do any sort of meaningful changes to my programming. But when you, what ended up happening to me is I hurt my right ankle. And then with my right ankle, once it stopped bothering me, I started training again before I had regained full range of motion in there. And then that altered my gait and I aggravated my left knee. So it's like my left knee went from being relatively passive with my running style to becoming some an area that was taking on load to the point where it got hurt. So it's like you start thinking about everything and how it all interplays with one another and, and what you actually need to do to be able to feel like you're going to be putting in the work that's going to pay off and not put you in a position where down the road you're just dealing with something else or your body's so broken after your career that you can't enjoy life and things like that. Things that you think a little more about as you've, you've been in the sport as long as I have now versus when you're in your mid twenties and you feel like you can just abuse the machine and it'll respond every day. <laughs> no, that was great. And even on that last point, like, I don't know if you've ever heard this saying like proximal structures dictate distal performance, right? Getting the thorax and the pelvis in, in a, a decent position and having good control of those things are going to dictate what goes on downstream. And mm -hmm. I think that's one area where physiotherapy can sometimes fall short. And there's reasons for that, whether it's who you have in front of you. But a lot of times with athletes, the process they go through is they injure themselves, they go and they they put armor on that, on that muscle, right? Like they build the muscle up, but that's not necessarily like, you're not looking at the pathology and the experience that contributed to that injury. Was it because of some type of organization of skeleton that led to that? And if you're not fixing that underlying problem, it might not be the same thing to come back, but it might be something downstream or it might be something else. And also just a function of the human, right? If you can start off in a better position, your ability to handle fatigue and, and resi overall resilience is going to be much better. It's the same kind of concept as HRV, right? Like the with, mm -hmm. with HRV, with responders, they know first responders is those with a more robust uh, and higher HRV are going to inherently be able to handle more trauma, more stress. It's the same thing. When you go into an into a event, a lot of people go into it, that event not in an optimal state of stress, right? So they have that that underlying current of, of stress already, and, and, and they're not able to absorb it as much that bucket is already partially full but yeah strength training is is just like uh, there's there's so many so many av other things like uh, that's it's 
I really like what you said there because you just talked about like all the non running things. It's like, that's where a lot of these little percent gains start happening. Like, yes, you do really need to get good at your sport and that's always going to be a modality for improvement. But you know, some of these other little places are places that you can check the box to and gaining some percents as well, just by mm -hmm. changing your perspective on them because yeah, yeah. Just... You said something, you said something that was like real kind of a paradigm shift for me, not too long ago, where it was like you, I mean, you have like this stress bucket, right? Where on race day, if you're running hundred miles, you're dealing with the physical stress, but you're also dealing with like, you got, you have a certain amount of mental capacity that you're working with where on that second mile, it's pretty full for the most part, you can tolerate a lot, but by the end you're like getting pretty low and it's really hard to draw from that. Yeah. And one thing I think that goes into what we were talking about here is if you're asking the questions that you inevitably are going to be asked during the race by yourself mm -hmm. in those weeks leading into the race, when you get to it, like it's, it becomes something where like, I know what two plus two is it equals four, because when I was younger, I did so much repetition with it. It just, mm. you know, I don't even have to think about it. It's just yeah. zero mental stress used at this point for me to recognize that two plus two equals four. Nice. So like, if I have some sort of thing that I know is going to be pinging my mind, say at mile 40 of a hundred mile, because I have enough fatigue in my legs to start getting nervous, but enough race left to be starting to second guess myself. Mm. If I've worked through those paces in my mind so many times in training, like I have to use pull way less from that mental capacity bucket on mm. race day because I've already had those, those thoughts taken care of and, and processed. And I've came to the conclusions of what they mean and how they will or will not impact my day. So then when that happens, I just divert to that prior knowledge versus trying to like unpack it while I'm out there performing at the same time. Yeah. I, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of everything you just said there, like the psychological coordination, it's the same concept as the physical coordination, right? Like we go out and our economy is improving. Yes. There is some there's aspects to stiffening of the, of the collagen fibers and the collagen matrix, but a lot of that is to do with the brain's patterning of that, right? How efficient can it send that signal? How clearly can it send that signal? That's where the coordination comes from. And that's what causes us to, to be able to improve our economy and spend less metabolic energy to do that task. And it's the same thing psychologically, like you said, it's like, that's a huge, people miss that checking your watch every two seconds. That's a, that's a cognitive demand. That's stealing your energy versus RPE, just a, a quick mental check-in. There's two different costs there. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, dude, this is great. This is a really great conversation. I've taken up quite a bit of your time and really liked your answers. For people, obviously, if you're listening to this, Zach's podcast is, is Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'll link to all this stuff in, in the, uh, the show notes. Really appreciate you coming on, man. It was really, really good chat. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. It was fun. I think we dove into some topics that I've talked about before on podcast, but we took them, I think, a little deeper. So it's always fun to have that 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 new the new aspects or different kind of views of that stuff. So I, so I don't feel like I'm getting too repetitive and boring the people who've listened to more than one episode of me. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was great. So yeah, we'll I'll leave all the links to Zach in the show notes, and we'll catch you later, folks.